What to get for the person who has everything. Anybody wrestling with that as Christmas comes around this year? That dilemma reminds me of something going around online that I shared with my brother, my brother-in-law, and my dad. You may have seen it. There's a, a picture of a man sitting on a hilltop looking off into the distance. And the caption says, Wondering how I can get my wife the perfect Christmas gift when she already has me. <laughs> it's a joke, guys. We need to get something for those wives God has blessed us with. <laughs> but there's a serious question that I've been thinking about as Christmas comes up. We think about what we give to a lot of people in our but. It's always me. Here's the serious question. What should I give? What should you give to the God who has everything? I always like Little Drummer Boy, the, the Christmas song. I relate to the little guy in that story as he approaches the manger. I'll share some of the lyrics. I'll leave out some of the pa-rumpa-pum-pum so we're not here all morning. But as I think about approaching God, I, I connect with this, the kid in the story. He says, I have no gift to bring, pa-rumpa-pum-pum, that's fit to give our king. He says, Mary nodded. The ox and lamb kept time. I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. Then he smiled at me, me and my drum. I love that verse. I relate to that kid. But I come back to that question, what should we give to the God who has everything? We're going to find the answer to that as we continue on in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. We're also going to answer another question near the end. But to set the stage, Jesus is in Jerusalem that week before the cross, and he's still talking with the religious leaders of Israel. And they're going to try again to trap him. If you look at verse 15, it says, The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. These guys don't give up despite past experience. And they sent their disciples to him. Notice that? They sent their disciples to him, their, their young followers, along with the Herodians. Why did they send their disciples? It doesn't tell us, but I wonder if it's their own past experience of being stumped by Jesus. Hey, let's send the new guys this time. Being the new guy or the new gal always comes with its risks, right? When I worked at the Heights and I was the associate pastor, we were going through a, a series on the books of the Bible, just one-week overviews of each book. As an associate pastor, I got Song of Solomon in, in all its glory. The, <laughs> being the new guy always, always has its risks. They, they send their disciples, and they send them with the Herodians. We'll talk about that in a minute. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. 
and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Now, that's quite a mouthful, right? I noticed a couple things about that little paragraph there first. That's everything they were, many of them. They said he was not. They were very swayed by appearances. They cared a lot about opinions, and often they twisted the scriptures to their own liking. But did they really believe these things in their hearts about Jesus? I don't think so. What are they doing? I think they're treating Jesus like a biscuit. They're buttering him up. They don't realize Jesus doesn't play those games. That doesn't work on him. But having done that, they they get to their trap. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, taxes are always a controversial subject, no matter who you're talking with. But they're trying to trap him. You say, how would the trap work? Well, that's where you come back to it's the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Herodians follow worldly King Herod, okay? And Herod and his guys cooperated fully with Rome because it kept their money going, right? So if Jesus answers, eh, don't, don't pay that tax, he's going to anger the Herodians, right? But the Pharisees are there too. They hated being under the thumb of Rome. And, and if Jesus came out overly zealous in his support, of the Roman tax, he would, he would anger them. Trap is set. Now, I want you to watch how Jesus springs the trap even as he answers their question. Verse 18, Jesus, aware of their malice, they weren't legit and all that nice stuff they said about him. There was malice underneath it all, and he knows it. He's trying to pull a fast one over on the Son of God. He says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Hypocrites mean they're, they're wearing masks. They're pretending to be something they're not. Underneath, they're different than their words, and he knows it. He says, show me the, the coin for the tax. And someone in the crowd pulls out a, a denarius, a coin, and, and Jesus says, look at it. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? You know, you get a quarter, you see George Washington on this denarius, they're going to answer, Caesar's. Caesar's image is on that coin. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The coin had Caesar's image on it. What's he saying? Pay the taxes you owe to your government, to Caesar. But I want to think about that fact that his image was on there, his likeness, right? From ancient times, rulers would spread their image around the empire in many ways, including coins, to remind people who was in charge. He says that has Caesar's image on it. Give it to Caesar's. But he goes on to say, and to God, the things that are God's. Let me ask you a question. What has God's image on it? You do. I do. What has God's likeness on it? You do. 
I do. We, we know this from, from Genesis, right? Chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then right after that, what does he tell Adam and Eve to do? Be fruitful and multiply. What would that do? It would spread God's image around the world, right? As believers today, that's what we are a part of when we make disciples of all nations. But what's the point Jesus is getting at here? We owe government honor and respect. Peter drives that home. Paul drives it home. We obey the government, but only, only up to the point where they infringe on God's territory. That's where we draw the line. He is setting limits on Caesar and every other human government. You are not God. In contrast, what should I give to the God who has everything? The question we started with. We owe God absolutely everything that we are. Our very lives head to toe, inside out. What's, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Don't, don't love government that way, but love God that way. And you say, hey, I, ad I admit the truth that humans are created in God's image, but isn't that image marred by sin? right? Good news, you think about that baby in a manger. That is why Christ came, to restore the image of God in you and in me by becoming one of us, human, and taking on our sin. He opened up the door for us to be made righteous in him. He assumed Humanity. I like what one of the early church fathers said. Why did he assume humanity in addition to his godhood? That church father said, that which is not assumed is not healed. He assumed humanity that it might be healed in him so that we might again reflect the image of God more completely. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 3. Think about this reflection process the believer's involved in. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, look, looking at him in faith, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's what the Spirit's busy doing in the life of the believer conforming the practice of our lives more to the reality that we are now righteous in Christ. And you know what? There's a promise in 1 John. One day, it's going to be complete. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The finish of that that process is coming. And he goes on to give us a little application in verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What's that mean? Hey, one day you're, you're going to reflect Christ completely. So how's about we get to it right now in our behavior? How's about we get to it right now in our thoughts, in our, in our words? Let's, let's cooperate with what the Spirit is doing there. How'd they react? Never gets old. When they heard it, they, they marveled. <laughs> they weren't expecting that answer. Trap was sprung, and they left him and went away. But I want to ask you a couple practical questions here this morning. If we owe God all that we are, does he have all of your love this morning? Does he have all of your heart? Does he have all of your obedience, or is there a little section of your life you've kind of marked off and said, not there, God? Have you surrendered completely to his will for your life? Does he have your all, or are we holding back? Are you holding back in your marriage? You know God is calling you husband or wife to this or that, but you're holding back in your parenting. Are we holding back anywhere in our church ministry? Are we holding back? What about our witness to the world as we go? Are, are we holding back there? And if so, we got to ask why. Why are we holding back? Is it pride? I got a promise for you this morning. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. You could settle that right here this morning. Is it fear? Our God is trustworthy. He's omnipotent. Is it an awareness of your own weakness or insecurity, doubt that he could really use you? In our weakness, he is strong. I like what author Francis Schaeffer said about the staff of Moses. Listen to this. He said, consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. Anyone want to amen that? But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. Then he asks the question of himself, is Francis Schaeffer the Francis Schaeffer of God? And he would want us to go on and ask ourselves the question, have you dedicated yourself to being the you of God? Second of our two questions this morning, we should give him our all. That's what we give a God who has everything. You say, why should I give him such a costly gift? 
Why? We're going to find the answer as he deals with another group of religious leaders, the Sadducees. Verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, that there is no resurrection. Now that's the substance of their, their doubt. They, they say there's no resurrection, and that wasn't even all for the Sadducees. They limited their view of the Old Testament, God's scripture there. They, they held the first five books above the rest of the Old Testament, minimizing the rest of it. They also did not believe in angels, nor did they believe in afterlife at all. Listen to what, what we read in Acts 23.8. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. You know what they had done? They had taken the almighty God and put him in a very tiny box. Can you imagine how that would shrink their understanding of who God is? His faithfulness, his love and power, not to mention his role as the judge of all eternity, either for reward in heaven or eternal damnation in hell. That was all boxed out. Is it any wonder that many of these Sadducees held back the glory that was due to God for themselves? Is it any wonder they compromised so much for worldly wealth and power? For many of them, God had become as Loki in the eyes of the Incredible Hulk. For all you Marvel movie fans, remember? Puny God. It shrunk God down and put him in a box. And I think about their presuppositions that they brought to the table. Presuppositions, if not lined up with the truth of God, have a way of keeping us from embracing the truth of God. I think about it this time of year at Christmas. There are many, many skeptics who will speak loudly against the virgin birth. I think much of that comes down to presuppositions, right? If you rule out a God who created the universe out of nothing, of course the, the virgin birth is going to throw you for a loop. But listen, if you believe in a God who created the universe out of nothing and then created Adam out of the dust and then formed Eve out of his rib, Causing Mary to conceive outside of the normal way of things is, is mere child's play. Right? Presuppositions. But they're going to put out a smoke screen. They're, they're going to use a, a smoke screen with Jesus. They're going to try to trip him up with a, a story that really annoys me every time I read it because it reminds me of those word problems in math class. I always hated those. It annoys me for another reason. We'll talk about it at the end. But they're trying to make the resurrection look foolish through their little story here. They ask him a question, verse 24, saying, Teacher, 
Moses says, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's right out of the book of Deuteronomy. That's true. That's true. Now, here begins their little little word problem. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And he died. So, to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And I'm sure they're thinking, we got them now. What in the world is he going to say to that? Now, I told you to annoy me because it sounded like a word problem in math, but I also wonder with many scholars, did this even really happen? I can't say 100%, but I got my doubts. Like, husbands one through three, okay, but like, Four through seven, I'm thinking they're, they're thinking twice about this lady, right? Like, is she putting something in the bread? What's going on here? As Jesus answers them, and he is going to answer them, we're going to see along the way the answer to that second question, just why we should give God everything we are. We're going to see five things about who this God is. But I want you to listen to how he answers, and I'll bring those five out as we go. First, he's going to deal with the source of their foolishness. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Pretty straightforward. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, before I talk about those two things a little bit, I want to say here's the first two things about this God that we should give everything to. When he mentions the scriptures, that reminds us, number one, that we have a God who communicates. He communicates his will to us, how we might be saved, how we might live. How often do we take that for granted? What if he had not given us the scriptures and we were out there blindly trying to find our way? We have a God who communicates. Thank him for that. Second, he said, for the power of God. We have a God of power. And I think about those two things together. They knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And I think about the fact that most of our failures involve ignorance or doubt in one of the two. Either the scriptures or the power of God. Either I don't know what I'm supposed to think and believe because I'm not in God's word, or I don't rely on God's power to live it out. Many of these religious leaders would have claimed they knew and loved the scriptures, but Jesus told them, you refuse to come to me to have life, even though they, they point to me and we got to avoid Scripture becoming academic only for us. We do involve the mind, but it's not trivia to learn and impress people with. It must be combined with faith in the power of God. Kay Arthur talked about this in a wonderful book she wrote about the names of God. One of the most comforting things the believer can do is learn the different names of God and what they tell us about him. One of those names is El Elyon, God Most High. 
But she brings out clearly in that book, we must never make the names of God a matter of trivia. We must put our faith in them. You think about El Elyon, God most high. And she told a story about a hunter who was, who was looking for deer. And he's walking down the path, and all of a sudden, a little furball jumps out of the bushes and jumps down at his feet. And he looks down, it's a little, little rabbit. He's like, what in the world would this rabbit feel so scared about to come stand at the foot of a hunter? Normally, they would run from people, right? And then just a couple moments later, a sharp-toothed weasel comes out of the bush a little down the road looking at the rabbit. And all of a sudden, the hunter realized, oh, <laughs> now I know what he's really afraid of. And the hunter fired a warning shot, and the, the weasel took off. She said, when we learn the truth of God, we need to be like that little rabbit. Don't just know it up here. Run to him. Trust in his power. If he's El Elyon, God most high, come to him in faith in your situation right now and believe that. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. They don't just recite it. They, they run to it. They knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And where does the power of God come from in the life of the believer today? Acts 1.8, as those disciples waited and prayed in Jerusalem, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power of God flows in our lives as we depend on the Holy Spirit of God. Do you know the scriptures? Do you know the scriptures? And if so, have you come to faith in the powerful God they point to? We're going to go on. Jesus is going to pick apart their smokescreen. Verse 30, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. No marriage in the resurrection, no reproduction. Why? Well, for one thing, there's no more death, right? Reproduction is, is no longer a thing that, that's needed. Does he say we're going to become angels in heaven? He says are like angels in heaven, like angels, not will be angels. And as much as I love It's a Wonderful Life and we will watch it this year, I'm not dogging on the movie too hard. They got it wrong on Clarence the Angel. They did. In that movie, he had been a, a human clockmaker in the 18th century. And when he died, he became an angel second class working to earn his wings. Jesus does not say we will become angels. He says we will be like angels. Remember this. Humans are always human and always will be. Angels are always angels and always will be. But that was the smokescreen. Now he's going to deal with the substance, the resurrection that they did not believe in. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And he quotes from Exodus 3 when Moses is wondering, who is this God? that's sending me to rescue my people. 
But he says, have you not read what was said to you, Sadducees, by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This is our third of our five points about this God. This is a God who is personal. Have you not read what was said to you by God? This was written centuries earlier to Moses, spoken to him. And yet he says, this is to you, Sadducees, centuries later. And I read that, I think, what if we realized and believed that about the scriptures? What if you believe that this morning, that they are a love letter from the God of the universe to you? Would that change the way we read it? Would that change the anticipation we had as we opened it up and got in there? Romans 15, 4, Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is a God who doesn't just deal with humanity as a mass. He, he deals with us personally. And many believe this is brought out by the fact that he didn't just say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You see, he's the God, not just of the whole group, but of each one personally. And what, what if we really embrace that this morning? Like if we embrace that he is the God of Keith and the God of Eileen and the God of John, would that change the way we approached him? He's a God who is personal. Fourth of our five, the context of this quote from Exodus is the Exodus, right? This is a God who delivers. Remember later in the conversation in Exodus 3, 7, the Lord told Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering." So I've come down to rescue them. He is a God who delivers. The fifth and final thing I want to bring out about this God, he is, he is the God of the living who resurrects the dead. Verse 32, when he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, Jesus looks at that and says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. What's he saying? He's saying he understands that passage in Exodus to mean that the spirits of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all very much alive even as God spoke to Moses. There is an afterlife. They were still alive and awaiting the future resurrection of their body. That's something that the Sadducees would have known if they had paid attention to Exodus and even more clearly, if they had valued all of the Old Testament equally. Why do I say that? Daniel 12, starting at verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and 
everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more clear prediction of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Crowd response again, verse 33, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished, dumbfounded at his teaching. Now, Christmas time, we think about Jesus being sent here as a baby in that manger. And as I was thinking about all five of those things I told you about God, every one of them is true of Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh. The God who communicates, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the ultimate communication from above. The God of power, as he looked to the cross, John 10.17, he said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He's also the God who is personal. Be hard to find a more personal promise than this in the upper room, John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That anyone there, that invitation's to everyone in this room. The God who delivers. 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Hebrews 2.14, why, why, why God in flesh? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's a God who delivers. And just a P.S. in Hebrews on the angel-human debate, verse 16 in Hebrews 2 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. About the God of the living who resurrects the dead, the fifth and final point. Where do we see this in Christ? John 5, 25, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Those who respond to his good news will be saved. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Think about this for a minute. Those who have done good putting their faith in Christ to the resurrection of life, that is the end game of the angelic promise to those shepherds in that field, right? That's the end game. Remember what, what they heard out there? Luke 2.10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So why? Why give God such a costly gift as, as all that you are? Is all that I am. I'll give you two reasons. Number one, he made you. He is your creator. Revelation 4.11 puts it this way. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. We could stop there. That'd be enough reason. But there's more. Think about this at Christmas time. The great joy, the good news, the peace that angels spoke about. I was purchased at a staggering, staggering price. Acts 20, 28, as Paul writes to the elders of Ephesus, he tells them to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And you think about that baby in the manger, and you think about the weight of the mission before that baby. It was captured powerfully in a Christmas song called Joseph's Lullaby. So I want you to close your eyes and ponder these lyrics. It imagines Joseph singing to his Stepson in the manger, go to sleep, my son. This manger for your bed. You have a long road before you. Rest your little head. Can you feel the weight of your glory? Do you understand the price? Or does the Father guard your heart for now so you can sleep tonight? Go to sleep, my son. Baby, close your eyes. Soon enough you'll save the day. But for now, dear child of mine, Oh, my Jesus, sleep tight. What a gift was that precious baby in a manger. Have you placed your trust in him? He didn't stay a baby. He grew, lived the perfect life you and I couldn't. He went to the cross and paid for your sin and mine. He rose again to be your Savior and Lord. Oh, come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Father, I thank you. At a time when our Jewish friends are celebrating Hanukkah, the, the lights that miraculously stayed on in that temple, today we come together and celebrate the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his wisdom in the temple here. As he reminded us that we are created in the image of God. And we owe God no less than all that we are. Every one of us in this room is aware of the ways we fall short. So we say thank you for sending the Savior to die for our sins. Rise again. Put your spirit within us that as we look to him, we might reflect him more and more. 
please help us cooperate with that process right now. May you move in this room and show us any place we're holding back at home, at work, in our witness, wherever we're at. By your spirit, help us surrender. For those who came in just feeling very down on themselves, condemned by the enemy, and God could never use you, may they remember the powerful picture of Moses' rod, a dead stick in your hands. Do mighty things. And Lord, we praise you for the God that you are. Think of all those wonderful truths, but I want to camp on one. The fact that you're a God who delivers, a God who is mighty to save. We praise you. May we give you our all in response, not only in this song we're about to sing, but as we head out there. May we spread that light to a world that so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.